I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So it doesn't replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Okay? Welcome to the campfire, party people. It's been a little while since we've got the timber out and got a match. Fired up the marshmallows. Yeah. Vince Scully, Life Sherpa, thanks for coming back to the campfire. I even wore my shirt today. You did. You really branded um, aptly. In fact, you're the only one who's not branded at this campfire. I am. I was going to say that, yeah. And speaking of campfire and the chairs, Kanish Chug from Global X, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now we are talking... All things investing, ETFs, core, satellite. What other terms are we talking about, Vince? Anything to do with ETFs and investing? What about thematic investing? Thematic. Oh, I love a good Commodity. Theme. Commodity. Crypto. Crypto. Ooh, <laughs> scandal. Market trackers. Anything. Market trackers. We're talking about anything and it is campfire chat. You're are we going to go deep? We're going deep, Vince. Very deep. Very deep. And look, we've got about an hour and a half. What's your hard exit today? Don't have one. Okay. If awesome. it's about ETFs, here we go. Oh, look at that. <laughs> so let's get right into it. On the way driving here about 20 minutes ago, there was a post in the Facebook group and that post is from Michael Coleman. Hi team, I'm at a crossroads. We suffered big losses last year in ETFs, 25%, and am super gun shy going forward. I know to look left, it's still a loss, by the way, and time in the market and all that stuff. However, I'm not seeing the market doing anything useful for a while. Strongly considering pulling out the rest and putting it against the home loan at 4.6% and rising for the next 24 months. Guaranteed returns and less stress till the market looks healthy again. Keen for your thoughts. I mean... I think, I think he should be refinancing his homeland, whatever he does. Yeah. <laughs> at, at 4 to 6%. That's right. 4.6. Yeah. Call me on 1300 My Sherpa. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, you're not supposed to plug your bloody chat. <laughs> and I will say, it, this is a sponsored episode. Global X have um, supported the podcast. And like anything, we, we do these episodes and we only do them if they provide value. So we're here to provide value and thank you to Global X. But to me, this question seems... The, I don't know if the words, the antipathous, the crescendo, the, the big moment that for the last, we'll call it five years or coming out of COVID, everyone who's walked across a keyboard and flicked money into any portfolio has woken up with a 20% return, which is not normal in a very short amount of time. But now market cycles and chickens and hens and all that stuff are coming home to roost we all know in theory that time in the market is better than timing the market. We all know in theory that investing is for the long term, but people like Michael are actually getting the physical, I'm hitting the mic against my chest, like that physical, this is it. This is what we talked about. I talked about it. I knew it, but now I'm feeling it. 
So what do we do? What does Michael do, Vince? Well, it's interesting he says down 25%. I don't know what... No, mine's only down 13% more portfolio. I don't know what period that is, but all of the components in our portfolios are back to their above their pre-COVID peak, so the February 21, 2020 peak. Yeah, but if someone was in Spaceship, Spaceship spaceship, that was hugely like thematic in in tech. If you were in tech um, or in NDQ... Um, you might where, where you've got 10% of your money in Apple and another, I don't know, 7% and falling in Meta. Um, yeah, Meta got a spank the other day, didn't they? It then, did, but what I would say to um, to Michael is how diversified is your portfolio? Mm. Because so that's where that's where ETFs potentially are supposed to help investors. They're supposed to help investors. There's now over 280 available on Australian exchanges, whether it's the ASX or CBOE. You know, there's so many different products available. They're supposed to help investors or give investors the tools to create that diversified portfolio. Now, I'm not a financial advisor. Um, you know, oh, but that's why we got you here. I know. but uh, I've got a license, don't you, Ruben? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got Vince there for that reason. Um, you know, I'm here from from the ETF issuer's perspective, but I guess the or representing the ETF market holistically, all I can say is, you know, it needs to be a diversified portfolio. You need to have that long-term view, obviously hurting in the short term, you know, seeing that drop. I think a lot of people, that have, as you said, that have come into the market in the past probably three years mm. have basically been, it's all green, mm. you know. And that's actually was a conversation I was having with a few wholesale clients, so private bank clients, et cetera, last year. And we were saying there is going to be this point where markets do turn. And we have to manage, and I was speaking with financial planners and I was saying, how are you managing clients' expectations? Because the 20% per year returns, that's not feasible in the long term. That's not feasible. There's going to be a boom. There's going to be a bust. There's going to be volatility in the market. How do you manage client expectations? You know, it should be, you know, I sometimes speak to, to friends and they're saying, well, what about that ETF? You know, is that going to return 25%? I said, well, okay, past performance. It may have, but it's not an indicator of future performance. These are the things on the horizon. And, you know, you shouldn't be going into it thinking you're going to make 25 to 30%. You should be going into it to being diversified across that portfolio, depending upon that risk profile, whether it's 6 to 8% for that growth or, you know, et cetera. So what we'll do, we'll talk about uh, Michael's situation conceptually, and then maybe we'll come back and talk about if someone was newer to investing, how would they start to navigate it? Mm. But I'm kind of thinking as a, some practical tools, and I'm really, I was saying to Shell from My Millennial Career the other day that I'm really good at making up points on the spot that sound that I've got conviction, right? I think Michael's probably got three options. One, sell, take the loss, put it on the mortgage, okay? Two, keep in the market and re-diversify from his current portfolio into a blended portfolio that's a one-stop shop portfolio in a box. Or three, keep the money in the ETF and only put new money into his mortgage and write it out. I mean, are there any other options? No, I think I think that's about right. But I mean, before we get into that, I think there's a few that brings up a few points that are probably worth dealing with before we get there, and that is the concept of diversification. You know, I've had mm. discussions with people who go, oh, I'm diversified, I'm in, I'm in spaceship, there's 130 stocks in there. That's diversified. Well, it is, except... You've got one industry. <laughs> if you've got 130, the same. So 
yeah, if you took 130 out of the, I know you probably know the, the number here, but the 3,500 stocks that are in the yep. MSCI All World, whatever mm-hmm. the number is, um, and you pick them across currencies and jurisdictions and industries, 130 probably is enough to be very well diversified, but 130 in predominantly US tech ain't. Mm. And so well, I let's, understand let's drill down yeah. on that then. So I think understanding what diversification actually mm. means, you know, diversification is not just numbers of stocks. Mm. It's about um, you know, diversification across geographies, diversification across asset classes, diversification across um, industries, diversification across stage of life, yep. size of business. So big companies, small companies, micro companies. And, um, but I- even having that property in there is diversification, isn't it? Well, in, in a way, I mean, if it was an investment property, it would do, yeah. and you know, which gets you to the other question that gets asked often: you know, <laughs> should I buy real estate or or in shares? And the answer is usually how much of each, rather than which one. Um, but getting back to that point, so I think diversification is important, mm. and then, but understanding what it actually is. So, I mean, you can afford to have a small part of your portfolio and stick it on red at the casino as long as you've got the other 98% diversified. But, but this is like, you know, if I can speak freakly and – sorry, if I could speak freely. Freak, freaky. <laughs> well, we are recording on Halloween, <laughs> so it is Freaky Monday. Yep. Uh, and it's the day where I try not to be home between 3 and 7 p.m. Monster Monday. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we are going to be talking about these themes and different ETFs, right? And, you know, full disclosure, I hold GlobalX ETF, so that's a disclosure there. But part of the thing with having GlobalX in our ecosystem was absolutely come and educate us, come and have a chat. But if you think we're going to say everyone put 100% of their money in some semiconductor ETF, it's that's a non-starter. A no. That's no, right. 100% no. Yeah. Like I, what I would say to – so we've got an ETF – and again, I'm, I'll speak. I can speak more freely on the ETFs that GlobalX offers, sure. and I can speak at a high level uh, on the broad market. But we've got an ETF uh, ZYUS. It's a 50 stock portfolio US stocks, but it's filtered first. It's the S and P 500 as a universe, and then they filter it first for the highest yielding, and then on those 75 highest yielding stocks based on dividend yield, then it's the 50 least volatile. So it's a very value tilted portfolio. When I look at that 50 stock versus the S&P 500, even though those 50 names come from that 500, it's about a 90% active share. So what I mean by active share, it's about 90% different from that base universe. So it's still the same names, but it's just the weightings are slightly different. Now, that ETF in one year to the 26th of October returned nearly 14%, Mm. positive. Now, the S&P 500 comparatively would be negative over that one-year period. And what I would say to investors is what I'm trying to, what I said earlier, there's more ETFs in the market to allow you to diversify. So I'm not sure what Michael's portfolio was, but what I would say is how heavy was it into some of those US tech names or growth more more specifically? And could you have diversified away from that over that period if you were concerned on the horizon of, of where markets were going to go on volatility in the market. There are also other products like, you know, other commodities, other asset classes, gold, fixed income, uh, different regions, different sectors, different themes. But then even there's trading tools. Mm. So, you know, we're one of only two providers that offer long 
leveraged. We're going to talk about that later. They're they're trading tools which allow people to hedge their existing portfolio Mm. based on the volatility. They're daily trading tools. You shouldn't use them for long term, but that's the ability for for those investors, those sophisticated investors. Which does come back to what's Michael's goal. Mm. If that was a long-term portfolio and it was skewed heavily towards, let's say, tech, I'm trying to think how else you could get a 25% decline over a year – in a diversified portfolio in the last in the last year, but let's assume it was heavily skewed towards growth and or tech. Was that a deliberate choice? Mm. Was that a, a market view that says I like these funds for these reasons or these assets for these reasons, and that aligns with my investment goals? Then. That could have been a very good decision with a bad outcome. Mm. Um, but it is possible to have a good decision, okay. sorry, a bad decision with a good outcome as well. But the thing is, there's a couple of things happening here. We all know that investing's for the long term. Mm-hmm. So Michael's obviously had the fast realization that, oh crap, I'm actually not a long term investor or I don't have the right risk profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it's that I was like, I just don't have this risk profile. Or on the other side of the coin, there maybe wasn't a full understanding of the diversification. And why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm. Or, or even to, to that point, the idea of rebalancing. Mm. So the conceptual idea of making sure you periodically look at your portfolio, whether it's every month, quarter, six months, year, whatever it may be, and making sure that that portfolio is still in line with your risk profile at the time of when you invested because that's what a financial planner is there to do. That's their job is to monitor your portfolio, making sure that your investment strategy that you set out at day one and your risk profile that you set out day one, six months later, checking in. Is that still correct? Yeah. So here's my actual answer, my three-sentence answer, and then you guys can give Mm -hmm. your two-sentence answer, three-sentence, then we'll move on. But if Michael had a portfolio at the moment, it sounds like it's heavily undiversified or not diversified. And let's say that he had $10,000 across two ETFs. The ETF, where are we here? I don't know. He might have the Pot X <laughs> cannabis ETF. <laughs> you know, he might have 50% in the Pot X cannabis ETF. I think I'm going to go long marshmallows. Yep. And he might have 50% in the Hero video games and esports ETF. He's got an interest in smoking a bit of weed and playing some video games. So he wants to invest in it. Don't sue me, Michael. I'm <laughs> allegedly and all that. Not French of us. So what if my whole thing for Michael, what would the Michael in three or four years want him to do today? Well, I'm probably just going to get 80% of that money invested and put it into a core fund, even like a, you know, a, a Vanguard bloody boring old VDGR or something like that and keep these satellites and his exposure to the diversification. Are we allowed to say the V word in your presence, your majesty? <laughs> <laughs> Look, they're, they're one of the largest ETF riders in the world, so you can't get away without yeah. saying So, that. So that's what I'm doing and probably pressing pause on any new money going into the market. But this, again, it really changes, Vince. If it's $200,000 it or – Yeah, and have you borrowed a ton of money to do it? Yes. But I think one of the key points is that the fact that it's down 25% 
for whatever it is, mm. over whatever period, has actually got very little relevance to the decision as to whether I sell, buy, or hold today. Mm. That your decision today as to whether I sell and pump it in, or pump it into mm. sorry sell and pump it into my home line home loan or hold is do I believe that my personal goals will be more likely to be achieved saving 4.6% of my home loan than taking whatever upside or downside might happen mm. in the markets in the funds I'm already in. And the answer to that question is, yes, my home loan will pre- perform better risk-adjusted for my goals, then that's absolutely what you should do. But the fact that it's down 25% has no bearing on that decision. Mm. Totally. I mean, I've got a REIT here, right? You can see there. It's down 15.18% today. I don't care. I'm not touching it forever. Mm. But I'm. that's where I'm at in my investing journey. Like my risk profile solid, long-term view. I know the ETF and the REIT, while it is down, the share price, quote-unquote, still pumping a nice distribution. Mm. So I, I honestly, hard on heart, believe that the money needs to probably stay in the market and just a rebalance and they're not putting any new money into the market until you're really resolved what your um, risk profile is and then maybe we're just doing a small monthly amount as opposed to waking up tomorrow and go, oh, there's five grand in the market. I'm an investor. Well, let's walk into the water. Yep. F- final thoughts on uh, Michael. I, I, to, to both of you, what you've just said, I think it's yeah, a reevaluation of what his, what his strategy is at this point in time and his risk profile and making sure that he's able to bear with the losses or the volatility that is going to be expected over the short to medium term. Um, it's not going to be what it was two years ago where everything is just, you know, it's, you know, not, not an afterpay in <laughs> February 2020. Yeah. And the other interesting thing um, that most investors over the last year will have experienced is that I think there have only been three or four years since the 1920s when the S&P 500 and the US 10-year 10, 10 bond have both been down. Mm. And this is the only year where they've both been down double digits. So this is not a usual year. Mm. Well, every asset class is down. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just count, like, I'm just trying to pull my maths. In 1920, you were like in your 20s, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. Um, <laughs> but interestingly enough, like it's a wild time out there. The, the, the daily gyrations of the S&P 500 at the moment and then the ASX 200, like – I haven't seen it like this in a hot minute. Like it's, yeah, I think for a lot of investors, especially because a lot of investors have come to the market more recently, especially the, the younger investors, it's a very good lesson to learn. Mm. You know, to go through this, it's not great in terms of where markets are. You know, geopolitically, there's a lot of tensions, a lot of people that, you know, that may be down in their portfolios, but it's a very, you know, we'll look back on this in five, 10 years because markets are coming down. There will be at some point a bottoming out. It always will happen. There'll be this cycle and that will be the opportunity for investors. And you don't need to get in on day one. You know, I was speaking to a, a wealth manager today, actually this morning, and he was saying, 
it's okay to miss that first month. You know, if you're entering that that upward swing or that upward cycle that we will eventually happen, whether it's in three months, six months, one year, two years, uncertain at this stage, but it will happen, that's okay. You know, but be prepared for that. Start to make sure that you're thinking ahead and thinking for the long term as well. Yeah. And that's it. It's like, we are long-term investors. Investing isn't a sport, unfortunately. You're not I'd actually. Be, you're not I'd actually be very bad to, at it. You're <laughs> not supposed to enjoy it. You know, the Melbourne Cup is tomorrow. Mm. This isn't a punt. Mm-hmm. No. You know, we're not. We're not sitting here going, okay. This ETF, like from my perspective, this ETF has a really good code, um, a stock code. I really like that. I should invest in it. No, that's the worst decision you should be making. Mm. And I say that as an ETF issuer. I, you know, but you guys my, do have the best codes. I, th- I think we've got the best code in, in the market, or, or, or definitely a few of them. Pot X. <laughs> we, we don't. Have, well, that's in the US. We've got here in the show. We've got ACDC and Gold, GOLD, and etc. Um, and Fang, for example. But what I would say is, investors should be doing that research. It should, it's not just based on the code or the name. Even the fact that you've got two ETFs in the market that may be covering robotics and automation. Mm. Okay, that's great, but how do they compare to each other? Mm. Let's peel back that you know the, the layers and let's actually look under the portfolio. Let's actually understand what's underneath that, um, and that's what investors should be doing and making that right decision for them. Now that we've warmed up the microphones, Vince, do you want to just lean over and grab a bit of um, firewood? Oh on? yes, <laughs> there we go. Um, we've set the scene. We're just having a campfire chat. Kanish, what is your role at Global X? So my role there is as head of distribution. Right. Um, so I am responsible for the sales and marketing team. So a lot of the external facing uh, uh, opportunities that we have, whether it's um, our sales team speaking to the institutional and the wholesale clients, so financial planners, wealth managers, or the marketing team in our advertising and content that we produce, um, that's sort of under my area of responsibility. Sweet. And do you want to just touch on, um, like this is kind of, I just want to set up the scene for everyone before we just move on and answer questions more so. Um, the story of Global X and the rebranding and all that just to get everyone up to speed. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of people won't know the name Global X. They are a US ETF provider. Um, they've been around for over 10 years now. 2008 was when they first launched over in the US. They're one of the fastest growing ETF providers in the US. So to give you some context of that, how we measure growth is... Um, the assets under management. So how much money we, we manage on behalf of investors. Uh, in 2018, GlobalX in the US was managing about 7 billion US. Um, at last count, it was about 43 to 45 billion US. And that's because of obviously the expansion that they've had um, through their ownership of Mirai Asset, which is a Korean fund manager. And then we fast track now to 2022 here in Australia, and there was a company called ETF Securities. Now, a lot of investors here in Australia would know of ETF Securities. We were the first provider here in Australia to launch a physical gold product, and mm-hmm. that was in 2003. So nearly 19 years of history, one of the, the second oldest providers of ETFs here in Australia, and that was a team that I was part of. And wow. ETF Securities had, at the time of its acquisition by Global X in June of this year, we had 23 funds that we were offering to investors um, across 
every single asset class. And that was a really, you know, unique thing. We have products that we were the first provider to launch um, Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs, um, physically backed Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs here in Australia, um, fixed income, a broad range of equity exposures, especially thematic ETFs such as ACDC, FANG, Robo, Tech, and then obviously we had a commodities range of gold, G-O-L-D, which is that, that physical gold product. Mm. And that acquisition by Global X, we recently rebranded. So we rebranded the ETF securities company to Global X. Now, that in a way was a now sort of a, a kickstart for us here in Australia. Um, and I was actually was speaking with the ASX and I think it's the first issuer to launch in Australia, even though it's through a rebrand, in nearly 10 years from an ETF perspective, from, from a passive side, so the passive managers. You've seen a lot of you know, Magellans and Fidelities, et cetera, that have launched ETFs in the market, but passive and index managers, um, I think we are the first in nearly 10 years to launch in Australia. Wow. And that is, you know, why did, why did GlobalX come in? Why did GlobalX buy ETF securities? Why have they come in and rebranded ETF securities? Why are we here? And, you know, for us at, at, at GlobalX now here in Australia, we are here to really make some noise in the ETF market. You know, we are growing our team out. We're going to be growing the product range out. We just launched our um, 23rd product um, under that under the company as of last week, and that's a green metal miners ETF. And that's a product that looks at the underlying producers and miners of those disruptive metals. So things like um, lithium, copper, aluminium, zinc, rare earths. It's a global play, you know, if to give investors the ability to just tap into the underlying mining exposure. Um, but there's the pipeline of products that we have now looking at to the end of next year is sort of a, a very long list. Um, and we're obviously going to be tapping into the global Global X team in the US. Obviously, they've got over 90 ETFs, $40 billion US that they manage. Some of their ETFs, you know, under some of the covered call income strategies, uh, some of the thematic ranges. You know, one of the key things that we found that resonated with us as the legacy ETF securities team and, and as Global X now is all their product development is founded upon research first. Mm. So they've got a 35 strong research team over in New York. They're looking first at identifying gaps in the market based on that research. What are the investment strategies that are required by the market? Is there then the commercial need? Is there the commercial gap? But then how can you do it differently and how can you do it better? So the key part there is being best of breed. So we're going to be coming out with some products that may already be offered here in, the, in Australia by other competitors. But for us, we would strongly believe that we are providing best of breed solutions in the underlying um, strategy. Mm. Well, there we, there we go, everyone. That's a bit of a, um, a background. Do you want to know something funny? When Natalie first reached out to us, JP said, oh, Global X, and I'd never heard of Global X, or it certainly wasn't front of mind. Oh, they're, you know, coming, they want to do some work. And, and I'm just like, are they domiciled in Australia? If they're not, don't care. Like, just not, just not going there. And she's like, yeah, yeah, they are. And I'm like, okay, let's. And then I, when I investigate, I'm like, oh, this is actually legit. Yeah, let's let's talk about ETFs and and let's do this because I already held um, your ETFs effectively. So through the ETF securities, yeah. yeah. So for those that have some of those products, the only change for them will be that the ETFs name at the beginning of the fund name mm. has been replaced by GlobalX. All the tickers are the same. The team is the same. The indexes that we track are the same. Everything is the same. Mm. In fact, we're only just building out the range. I must say it has always been a bit confusing. We've been long-time users of gold mm. as the physical gold component of our portfolios. And um, when you see it spelled out, you go ETFS, gold 
ETF. It looks really odd. Imagine having to say it to clients. Yep. It was <laughs> it was always sometimes a little bit hard to have to constantly, you know, say. So it's been, you know, nice in a way we've got that sort of brand mm. of Global X. Um, and, you know, for us, it's yeah, it, it's an exciting opportunity for, for everyone there. Um, and also I think it's exciting for the Australian market because, you know, we're now going to be building building on everything that we've already had, the strong foundation that we had at ETF Securities. We're now going to just be building on that as Global X. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back right after this and chat more about all your questions. We'll try and punch through as many as possible in the next hour. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. I put up on Instagram, do you have any questions about ETFs? Do you have any questions about investing? Thematic Vince, Core, Satellite. Core, Satellite. All the <laughs> words, guys. All the words. So let's start. Let's just walk into the water. My good friend Lucy Harris in Melbourne, she writes a good question. Is buying many diversified but similar ETFs any better than just buying into one diversified fund? Vince. Uh, yes, it is. Um, w- sorry. When, you, when most people think about diversified ETFs, they're thinking things like some of the multi-asset funds like um, – your VDGRs, etc. Right, yes, um, um, I wasn't going to mention the the, the V word, but um, well, they got no competitive or the B actual... word, or the B word. Um, yeah. <laughs> that that's what a lot of people think about truly diversified. Uh, but if you're trying to say, well, look, I'm going to have, um, you know, I'm going to allocate some to Australian equities. I'm going to allocate some to small Australian equities. I'm going to allocate some to U.S. equities. Some to emerging markets. Oh, and I'm going to put a little bit into pot mm. or lithium or green energy, that all makes perfect sense. Mm. Um, and certainly your what you're getting in your lithium or your green energy fund is likely to have a very small, to the extent that it turns up in any of the other ones, it's likely to be a very, very small allocation. So what you're actually doing is cranking up your 
investment in that end of the market. Mm. And there's lots of reasons why that's a, a good thing. There are lots of reasons why it might not be prudent, depending on what it is and how much you're allocating it to. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm sure Kinish has got some views on this, but you know, there's there's a fine line between a fad and fashion or a re- genuine theme and picking the genuine themes that will make a material difference to your investment outcomes. And that outcome doesn't necessarily mean higher return. It could mean lower volatility. It mm. could mean a whole bunch of things. It doesn't nec- A better return doesn't always mean a higher return. Yeah. There's a question here, Ozampi75. Is it okay to put all money in ETFs or should I also buy individual stocks? So I think for me, Kanish, like – this, this, and this feeds into this core satellite thing, right? So there's a uh, question here from Carlos Peon. What do you mean by satellite approach and thoughts on just investing in global top 100? So we'll just, as an example, core satellite, you might have a bread and butter, diversified, multi-sector, boring ETF with 80% of your funds, right? And then for the 20%, to keep you invested, to scratch that interest, to scratch that itch, you may put money in some satellites, right? Or to get extra exposure to different industries or countries or themes. For me, the thematic ETF, for example, I'll I'll just use, what do we got here? The semiconductor ETF that you guys have, semi. Mm -hmm. Like if I wanted to do 80% bread and butter, 10% something else, 10% semi, to me, it makes sense instead of, because I've got an interest in semiconductors, for me, instead of buying 100% of that 10% allocation in NVIDIA, I'll diversify within that sector. So the risk is lowered because I'm diversified within the sector. Is that a fair comment? You're you're removing the single stock risk. Yes. I think that's the key part there. So especially when we look at thematic ETFs, generally they're non-Australian equities. So they're generally going to be stocks that are going to be listed in the US, primarily depending upon if it's a tech-orientated thematic. What I've found actually with a lot of clean technology thematics, they've got a lot of exposure to Asia and Europe, especially Korea, Taiwan, Japan, and you know within Europe, some of the Nordics and the UK, et cetera. So when you're investing in single stocks for a thematic like semiconductors, mm. do you know enough about that individual stock to have a conviction in NVIDIA, for example, or in ASML or in Qualcomm, whatever it may be? Is it better for you that if you want that theme to buy into an ETF that has a diversified exposure? Now, from my perspective, it, it is because you're removing that single stock risk. It doesn't necessarily, though, mean that if you still want that single stock, you can do it. So in the same way, you adopt that core satellite approach that you've just mentioned, that 80% in a, a multi-asset um, ETF or fund, and then 20% in satellite exposures such as a thematic ETF for 10%. It doesn't – maybe don't do – if it's not 10%, if it's 8%, mm. and you still then take that 1% or 2% into that single stock. So, you're again, you're just reducing that single stock, yes – you won't be riding out, you know, you may not get, if NVIDIA goes up X amount, your ETF's not going to go up the mm. same amount. It'll go up at a diluted level or a muted level based on the fact that it only has, you know, in semi, I think NVIDIA is between 8 to 10% of the portfolio from memory. Um, have a look. Yeah. You're, you're going to be... Yeah, and I think 
sorry, Vince. One sec. Ah. Um, oh. 9.4. Is it on the far left, the net assets? Is that the percentage there? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so 9.4%. Would that be right, of the portfolio? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the point I was, I was going to make is that the if you're taking a satellite view, um, you should probably be less concerned about overlap of names with your other funds. So if you're going to buy – if you took a view that – semiconductor is a theme that I want to invest in. Yeah, if you've already if you already own NDQ, you'll have an investment in mm. Nvidia. If you already own an emerging markets fund, you'll have an an investment in TSMR. It's a big chunk of a lot of emerging markets because it's a big chunk of the Taiwanese market. Um, I believe it's TSMC. TSMC, yep. sorry. Gosh, I was mixing, mixing up with ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> ASML. ASML. ASML yeah. Yes, um, but you will end up with overlap on the names, mm. which is something you shouldn't particularly worry about. What you are, what you're in effect saying is, I like this segment more, so I want to put more yeah, of my portfolio. Daddy needy. So for me, I didn't understand that, but I yeah. think I know what you mean. <laughs> daddy needy. So for me, if I wanted, if I, you know, was thirsty for uh, semiconductor technology. Just as a and I wanted ten percent of my portfolio into semiconductors for a couple of reasons. I froth on it. I think there's a future on it. Investing is boring, but at least this gives me a little bit of joy in the morning. All that keeps me involved and all that. The question for me is: Do I want to invest in just one direct share, or do I want to spread the risk like you said? Uh, yeah, for, for, my for me, side, yeah. I'm doing the ETF all day long. It's yeah. It it makes sense because it removes the need for you to be across the market. It removes the need for you to have to choose that one stock. What happens if it's not Nvidia? What happens if it's Intel? Mm. That is that winner in that period. Yeah. Um. It also removes the need for you to think about the rebalancing because at an ETF provider we do that for you. Mm. We're tracking an index. This index strategy is purely focused on the semiconductor industry. It's thirty of the largest semiconductor companies by market cap. You know, we have that rules in place and we manage that for you. That is our job. Our job is there to provide investors those exposures and an ease of access. Um, but you mentioned about thematic investing. Thematic investing is about long-term investing. I'm very sort of strong on this where I don't want, uh, you know, I sit on the product development committee at GlobalX here in Australia. We are not looking at thematics and we're going to be launching more thematic ETFs in the future. We're not going to be launching thematic ETFs that are short-term. They're not fads. You know, there was working from home ETFs that were launched during COVID. <laughs> Conceptually, an underlying stock, some really good stocks at the time, Zoom, Microsoft, et cetera, um, DocuSign, you know, at that point in time, really good companies and worth investing in would have done very well, but it's not a long-term thing. It's mm. a fad, mm. simple as that. And I think the code in the US was WFH. So great. Again, mm. it, it tracked, I think it got the, like- the, a, tri a the triumph of marketing over investment. Exactly. And in the US, the, the time to market from the idea to launch is very short. Mm. Here in Australia, it's still between that three to six months. And so from that perspective, but when I think about thematic investing for investors, they are satellite components generally. Mm. Most investors would use them as satellites. You do have some- 
investors that may try to build a core portfolio around thematic investing, but it's not just one theme, it's a combination of mm. themes. So they're being diversified across different thematics. But, but that would speak to their risk profile. Being very... And it's like, I want to go to town, baby, and I want to go to town now. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, and that's on that side of the spectrum, um, but majority are satellite exposures and they're sort of that complement and they have to be aligned to your views and values. To your point, you really like semiconductors. That's what that is aligned to do. Have you got a space one? So you could have a satellite satellite? We, <laughs> oh, dear God. Can, can we get the check, please? <laughs> Over here. Not yet. No. Um, but um, when, when, often when I think about thematic investing, I go to this um, Jack Bogle in his grumpy old man Oh, face. here we go. Um, Vince sent me this video the other day. Yeah, and yeah. he goes, oh, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast. I'm like... Vince, I need you to chill out. Now, there's, there's some science know, in this question. Know, just just go with this for a moment. Um, this is our we're, reputation. Where Sir Jack or St. Jack um, was asked about this whole thematic investing space, which, I mean, he was never a fan of ETF, so let's put things in perspective. But he, he, he said, um, he, he talked about the fads and fashion things and joked about this thing called the Emerging Cancer ETF. Um, but I think the point that he was making is the point we've just been talking about is you know, what's the research process that gets you to be able to distinguish from a fad and a fashion to a genuine theme? So I think there are a few things there. So how do you identify a megatrend? And the key part of identifying a megatrend is it needs to be a force of structural change. So it needs to be some form of innovation or moving towards some structural change either within the in an economic sense or a societal mm. perspective. So I think about battery technology. That is going to be transforming the way in which we live our life. It's moving towards that idea of going towards net zero. There's different technologies that we can be using to get to that goal or get close to that goal, to be honest, whether we reach it or not is, is a question. Um, but then alongside of that, it needs to have government support. You cannot have a megatrend, which is long-term in nature, without support of government. And when you have government support, that's when you start to see actual growth within that particular industry. You start to see innovation from the corporates. You start to see um, corporations just supporting it with investment and R&D. So examples there would be battery technology is a good example more recently because it's fresh in my mind. We've seen government policy shift over the past three to four years, especially from China, from European countries, and now more, more recently Australia, the sort of cotton on, I think they're one of the last in the world to actually do something around you know, battery vehicles and electric vehicles. But what we're actually seeing there is government support has forced corporations to start to shift their goals towards petrol vehicles, their idea around what will be that, that year. So Volkswagen in 2025 is going to stop production apparently or start to phase out production of um, petrol and diesel, um, Porsche, um, or even Mercedes or BMW, I saw the Rolls-Royce Spectre the other day. Oh, is that a new you okay. saw battery in operated? In the flesh. No, 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 on Instagram. On Insta okay, yeah. yeah. There's so many now that are now just putting in actual hard deadlines for themselves mm -hmm. to start to shift towards that. That's only been possible because of government support. So you have this first idea of is it a structural transformative trend that's going to transform economies, industries, and society. You then have government support. From government support, you have corporate support. From corporate support, you have consumer support. You have those three. You have something that can potentially be a long-term megatrend. I'm just putting my hand up for a question. We talk about trends. 
and this probably speaks to why you don't put the whole house on a trend. Mm. Like back when Vince was born in the 20s, I would probably want to invest in the... Oh, phonographs. I went very long phonographs in the Great <laughs> or, Crash. Or, or like uh, rail, ra- railroads, <laughs> yes. the railroad industry ETF. I mean, <laughs> you know, sure, ride that way for 40, 50 years, and, but get off the wave and make sure that you didn't have 100% of your house on the wave. I don't know, like... Well, but that's the thing. By long term, I'm talking 10, 20 years. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to be talking infinite. And I think you could argue there are probably some industries that are going to be just perpetual in their in their requirement and their need for society. Semiconductors is one of those. It's like, you know, but then you could argue that oil was like that okay. as well. Yeah. Well, Wait a minute, sir. I just, on that point, sorry to no, interrupt, Glenn. That, um, don't apologize. In the mid-90s when I started flogging infrastructure funds, infrastructure was a, a fad or a fashion. And where are we now? 27 years later... It's hard to envisage a diversified portfolio that doesn't have an infrastructure allocation in it. On the other hand, in you know, 2006, 2007, BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, yeah, China. China uh, Brazil, Russia. Oh, South Africa. Um, BRICS, yeah. It was a true fad. I remember going to so many Macquarie yeah, days. It was PD all over the people. There bricks, were brick funds being launched left, right and centre. And, um, and it's just the the ick, the India and China. Exactly. So, <laughs> okay. So, so where's Brazil? Where's South Africa in that? But India, China, absolutely. Mm. Um, so that's presumably where being a specialist infrastructure, a uh, specialist ETF manager, allows you to invest in the research to to to, to identify what is going to be the mm. mega trend. So I think that's mm. where, from global X's standpoint, you know, they've been one of the leaders on thematic ETFs. If I just look at their range over in the US, it is um, quite heavy on the thematic ETFs as alongside income and commodities. But and that's where in Australia ETF securities and now global X, we've tried to be that as well. We've tried to be that pioneer. So we were the first provider to launch a hydrogen. Um, thematic ETF or a semiconductor or a robotics and automations ETF, a battery technology ETF, you know, from where we sat in that product development process, which has been quite nice at Synergy. When we were acquired, we looked back on it in terms of the legacy team. They were like, oh, this, this actually makes sense because the the philosophy that GlobalX has, we've been having, we've been adopting anyway. And, you know, we, we take that step back. Is this going to be a long-term megatrend? You know, I look at hydrogen. We launched that in October of 2021. That's a theme that a lot of investors, when we were in that development process, would have say to us, you know, it's, this is, well, why are you doing that? Um, and we would argue, well, it's one of the long-term structural megatrends. It may not be the one that wins. It's been volatile, to say the least. But it's a, it's a <laughs> Especially when you field, put a match to it. But it's a greenfield <laughs> It's a greenfield investment opportunity. It's going yeah. to be volatile in that early stage of innovation. Mm. It's not yet even close to being developed. Yeah. You know, hydrogen as a commodity has been around for decades, but in terms of green hydrogen, where we're trying to head towards, that is still very early stages. And so that will then inherently have some volatility, which to your point, it's a satellite. Mm. Vince, on the whole core satellite things from a portfolio construction 101, you know, a million years ago when I was practicing... That's I'll, right, you're a retired I am a retired advisor. financial advisor, Vince, that's right. Not retired, just <laughs> retired, retired financial <laughs> advisor. Um, I never really did more than an 80 20 um, in terms of core satellite. And it really was just for clients who 
did have a bit of an interest, but enough to want something a little bit more sexy. Do you have a rule of thumb that you would do? I mean, if in doubt, you don't need to, but if you want to, maybe a 90-10, like... Yeah, I mean, it needs to be... If you're going to do it, it needs to be big enough to be meaningful, mm. but small enough that if you get it wrong, it's not going to tank your portfolio. And some of it becomes core. I mean, infrastructure, as I said earlier, was a satellite. It's now core to any... It's a defensive Um, (laughs) satellite. We use gold as the defensive component of our growth portfolios because it gives you a lot of the benefits of a bond without the capital volatility that rising interest rates are going to mm-hmm. give you. And it's provided a very solid anchor, uh, particularly to an Australian investor where you know, decline in the Australian dollar is typically associated with a rise in the um, the gold price, which then is amplified because the US, because it's priced in US. Um, but whether, you know, should I have, if, you, if your question is, you know, I've got six or seven core funds to get me my diversification across factors and geographies and you know, do I need another six satellites? That but, starts becoming a bit messy. But, but, do, but do you take a step back? So the satellite component we're always talking about is thematic ETFs or, you know, it could be... Or direct share. Or direct share. Or share it's all equities. Yeah. You know, so... Don't have too much thematic bonds. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But that's only within the equity part of your portfolio. Mm. What about in that... So. When you break down a portfolio, you generally look at it in terms of very high level. It's probably three. It's probably equities, fixed income slash cash, and then alternatives. Mm. So within equities, then you've got domestic and international. Thematics probably feature in that international satellite component. Mm. Alternatives, that's where your gold sits. That's where potentially Bitcoin sits. as a mm. growth alternative. It's a 1% in a portfolio, 2% in a holistic portfolio. It's mm. nothing more because it's that growth alternative. You're not well, I just want to give people, you know, because we can't provide personal financial advice, but I guess for me and, you know, in this world, giving some guideposts, I'm probably saying 80-20 as a max for your own benefit. Like mm. if you did actually want to, and then within that 20%, can you go – for lots of five hmm. That's yeah. and then diversify the, the satellites. And and this is the thing that Vince and I had a long chat the other day after he sent me the Jack Bogle <laughs> thing and he's like, oh, I'll bring this up with Ganesh. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, bloody hell, you're going to get me cancelled. But um, Did I do it well or what? It, I think it was a good Segway. discussion. <laughs> yeah. And like, so for me, I really like the idea for my own investing in these thematic ETFs to give that little bit of interest and color. And hey, if it goes up 50%, awesome. I'll take it. But if it goes down 90%, it hasn't flushed me out. It's it's two things. So a satellite exposure is designed there to do, allow you to express an outcome that you're trying to achieve or to express a, a view as well. So for some investors at the moment, they may say, well, I'm concerned on where markets are going or I want to be heavily exposed into emerging markets because I believe they're heavily undervalued or Europe, for example, or value stocks. Well, then they could express that satellite tilt accordingly. Or they go down that path of, well, I actually am more on that sort of thematic 
area. I want to express my views. I really like semiconductors. I don't know which stock to buy, so I'm going to buy an ETF that represents that or hydrogen or battery technology, whatever it may be. They can do it in that way. And I think that's where that part of it comes in. Mm. Um, on Jack and his, um, his disdain for ETFs, I think a lot of people have this view because it's an acronym. Mm. If you ex- actually expand what that acronym means, it's an exchange-traded fund. We all know what a fund is. Mm. We invest in funds whether they're listed or not. It's simply that it's a fund that's traded on exchange. So there's a vehicle, that, but it's a vehicle. That's all it I is. Think I mean, I think having be, a I go think, at the fads. Yeah, well, I think to be fair to Jack, he, you know, as the popularizer of index funds generally, yes. or what he calls TIFFs, traditional indexed funds, um, he was very much seeing it as a long-term hold and he would have used the word passive rather than indexed. Um, I don't like to use the word passive because I think choice of an index is Because that's your act- personality. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think because choice of an index is an active decision. It is. So by choosing ASX 200, yep. you're saying Australian, you're saying financials, you're saying mining. By choosing the Bloomberg has- New Energy Index, yep. you're choosing um, uh, to invest in... Well, well, and just to put things in perspective, in 2007, mm. I actually launched a what was then the Wilderhill New Energy Index Fund as a structured note. Right. Um, and we sold quite a bit of it before it was particularly trendy. 2008 was not kind to it, I must no, admit. No, I can't imagine it would have been. <laughs> um, but the, so I think Jack was really against the concept of trading. And I think he saw intraday pricing of the ETF equivalent of his S&P 500 or Russell 5000 or whatever it was, was therefore encouraging trading. I think that was his major objection. Mm. I don't think it's a an objection to listed funds per se. And of course, in the US, there's a huge tax advantage in buying the ETF as opposed to the corresponding unlisted fund. Okay. Well, let's talk to that. And then I want to go through an example of one of the Global X funds just to open the hood of one of the funds. You see all this stuff online, Vince, and people say, I don't do the managed fund version because of the tax drag. And I mean, it just sounds so sophisticated. And for me, in my investing, I think it would be that nominal you wouldn't notice anyway, unless I'm wrong. Can you just talk... In, the in, tax the, in the ETF US, in, in the US, this is a huge difference, mm. right? So, if you're reading stuff on investing on the internet, most of it's American, and that statement is true. And the key reason it's they're taxed differently. So, in the US, a mutual fund or what we would call an unlisted fund here. Or a managed fund. Or a managed fund um, has to distribute to its investors both um, income as well as realised capital gains. So that means both the ETF doesn't. So a fund that generates capital gains, particularly gains on assets that were held for 12 months or more, the managed fund will distribute that gain to its investors and they'll pay tax on it in their current year, whereas the ETF doesn't. Is that because of the it's units just a, are quarantined? No, it's just no. a quirk in the way the US tax system works. Right. Now, that 
doesn't apply here, where you do get a difference here is that in a managed fund, as investors move in and out, like other investors, so you hold your units, other investors moving in and out, the fund manager has to buy and sell assets to manage. So if you redeem, so if someone else redeems a million dollars, they have to turn a million dollars of underlying assets into cash to give it to you. And spread it. And, and everyone shares in this capital gain. An ETF, on the other hand, in Australia, first of all, other investors moving in and out are actually buying and selling them from each other, generally, because you place an order on the ASX through your broker and some other someone else is selling them. To the extent that there isn't enough for sale, the market maker is capable of creating more units. And in case there's too much for sale, the market maker can destroy units by effectively giving someone the underlying assets in exchange for those units. And that giving of units, or underlying assets in exchange for a unit in the fund, doesn't trigger a gain in the fund. But the recipient of the underlying assets inherits the cost base. But they don't care because they're doing this on revenue account because they're professional investors. So the gain just disappears. Mm. But in practice, that only matters when the fund is net shrinking. Yeah, and I just, is as a segue, <laughs> you guys launched the Green Metal Miners ETF on the 25th of October. Mm-hmm. People may say, and Vince kind of answered it, but I'll say to you, like, oh, Global X, like you've got this new fund. What, what about liquidity? And how do you <laughs> bench test the fund? How do you bench test the need? Because remember, remember that, was it Self Wealth created that ETF of top self-managed super fund holding and it was just a dumpster fire? It would be. But a global water fund would be pretty liquid, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I think um, with ETFs and liquidity, people need to understand, um, and I, I'm constantly saying this, the liquidity of the fund is not represented by the size of the fund. So when we launch a fund, it is normally seeded or the initial investment is provided by what's called a market maker. Now, in the ETF landscape, so when an investor buys or sells a CBA share, they're essentially trading with other shareholders of CBA if they're wanting to buy. So there has to be someone on the other side willing to sell. And that's why you see that supply and demand will move the share price. With an ETF, it's an open-ended structure, which means, as Vince talked about, whenever there's a need to create more units like a normal managed fund or conversely redeem more units and take units away, we can do that. So the price of that ETF on market should be reflected by the price of the underlying exposure that we're trying to track. So if it's our physical gold fund, we're essentially tracking the underlying price of US dollar gold. That's what we're trying to do. There is no difference where that's what you should be seeing during the day. And, you know, what, how do you, who regulates that though? And that's what's called a market maker. And for this fund, um, GMTL, it's a new mm-hmm. fund. New fund. Let's just go through it. So the issuer is Global X Management Australia Limited. So mm-hmm. we know it's, um, it's domiciled here because um, you are the issuer. The custodian 
is the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation Limited Sydney branch. So what does that mean? Does that mean... HSBC. Yep. And... (laughs) (laughs) You knew that, of course, Glenn, did you? (laughs) Yeah. But what does that mean in terms of... Because I didn't want to say if Global X goes under... But like, because that's a genuine thing. Yeah, 100%. So it's like with a managed fund, the underlying exposure that we're tracking or that we manage on behalf of investors. So for this one, for example, we are investing in over 40 equity stocks that are exposed to the theme of transition metals and green metals. So the miners and the producers across, say, lithium miners, um, copper, zinc, et cetera. Those underlying equity holdings that we hold in, in the whole fund they are held on custody with HSBC. Yeah. So there's a segregation there. I think that's really important. If I take it back to our gold fund, we hold $2.5 billion, $2.6 billion worth of physical gold. That's in Australian dollars. Where is that kept? Uh, with JP Morgan in London in their vault. Um, it is literally in the London vault. It gets audited twice a year. It gathers dust. It's about 27 to 28 tonnes worth of physical gold, which is essentially a semi-trailer's worth of physical gold. That's the best way Have to Have you been there yet? I've not been there. If, uh, if they get to show you, can I come? <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to take people over there because I, I'd love to see it as well. Yeah. But um, we've seen some photos of it. and uh, But it's audited. We've got all the serial numbers of all the bars, but it's segregated with JP Morgan being the custodian. So for that fund, JP Morgan is a custodian. With our Green Metal Miners ETF, HSBC is our custodian. There is that segregation away from the manager so that should anything happen to us as the manager, investors essentially have an entitlement on that gold. They have an entitlement on those underlying equities. They can be sold down and it can be liquidated so cash can be returned to investors. So there is that safeguards in place. You know, all these products, all our processes are regulated. You know, we have to have these products and funds before we launch them approved by ASIC. We have to have the funds approved by the exchange, so the ASX, for example. So there's very strong rigors in place. And even beyond that, we have our own audit process and due diligence process that we put into place. Mm. And you ask that question, what do we do when we launch a fund such as this, which is going into investing in, um, you know, China A-class shares, Taiwan, Korea, you know, European markets, Australian markets, the US, just the, you know, it goes across many different markets. What about that liquidity? So we will do stress testing. We will work with that market maker who is that intermediary that essentially creates the market for investors to buy and sell units of that ETF on screen through whether it's their their broker, trading account, whatever they use. But that's what we would do before we launch the fund. We would ask, can we actively create, you know, 25, 50 million? Can we can we counter, can, can we accommodate that level of trading? Mm. Can we create that many units and not have any tracking error? So any difference between the fund and the underlying index to ensure that there's no disparity between the performance. That's mm. the last thing we want to do. That's our job is to ensure that we can effectively and accurately track the exposure that we're saying we're going to track. So basically the money that I take and put into GMTL, the Green Metal Miners ETF... And that's just a sidebar, like mining doesn't equal bad because you need metals and minerals to create the good, clean stuff. That's, that's another thing. Um, and the fund has an ESG screen in place because we don't want, you know, providers, producers or miners that are associated with coal mining, et cetera. Oh, the black stuff's the naughty stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the benchmark is the BITA Global Green Energy Metals Index. Mm-hmm. Now, that index 
Global X, you've got nothing to do with that company. You just no. have found an index yep. and you were tracking it as a fund manager. Exactly. So, to uh, take a step back in terms of product development of an ETF, we wanted to launch an ETF on green metals as a thematic and the miners. How do we do that? We then approach a number of different index managers and we talk to them and say, this is the strategy that we want to track. What do you have available? Sometimes they'll have something on the shelf available for us to use and we'll dissect that. We'll do some stress testing. We'll sort of put it through its rigor. Is that what we want? Or if it's not on the shelf readily available in the form that we want, we will work with that index manager to create something or customize something and then we license that index. So all we're doing is that is a separate company. We license that index from them. They give us that portfolio and we track it. So the current index that you guys are tracking, that you've licensed, mm -hmm. the um, sorry, I've got it here, the Beta um, Global Green Energy Metals Index, is that license exclusive to Global X, or are there other fund managers who are using their ETF here in Australia? No index. Okay, yep. cool. Secondly, that index. Do you know how long it has been active for? Uh, that's been a customized index that we've worked with Bitter. Yep. It's a German index provider on. Yep. Um, so it's a very short amount of time that that yep. index has been live. For. So I think like there's risks in everything, right? Now, I know if I wanted to invest in an A200 ETF, well, I can see the index, I can see the history and all that. In these themes, you've almost got to say, look, I get what they want to do. It aligns with my interests, it aligns with my values, it aligns with my ethics. I'm willing to invest in this theme and understand, you know, by looking at the, the top holdings of the index that these are the companies I'm investing in. Because, you know, past performance isn't an indication of future performance, but it kind of is, isn't it? Wash your mouth. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I think one of the – I mean, you've hit on the precise point that by choosing – do you want to have and, a look at the top holdings? Oh, I can't see it out of my glasses. Um, <laughs> Bend over and pick them up. Get some firewood um, way down there. So my oh, it gets fogged up in the in the smoke. Um, <laughs> just as if you were buying a, a managed fund, you need to understand in the active sense. Mm. You need to your due diligence is well, who's the manager, and what's their investment process, and who's managing it, and what's their track record. When I'm looking at something like this, I'm going well. Well, what's the index? What's the methodology and what does that result in? Mm. Usually they will back test them. They say, well, look, if we applied this methodology for the last 10 years, this is what it would have looked like. Um, which you query what information that actually gives you. But the point is, you know, do you, does the methodology of the index provider align with the investment thesis that you're trying to implement? And then secondly, how does the manager implement this? So do do they actually go and physically replicate this? So you, yes. are you actually holding this? Yeah, so all of our equity ETS we physically replicate, which means we hold the underlying portfolio in the exact weighting that we're required to do. So we will go out and buy those physical shares. And on that methodology, so the actual index is using the IEA, which is the International Energy Agency's definition of metals that are required for clean energy transition. Mm. So there is a clear def definition by an independent body that goes, these are the metals that are going to be required for that clean energy. So they've gone zinc, copper, aluminium, lithium, lithium cobalt, rare earth, platinum group metals, cobalt, etc. They've defined these. 
Now, based on that, then that goes through that process, that index approach. And something that we worked with Bitter on, something that when you talk, think about customization, we didn't want more than 10 stocks mm. per metal based on that IEA's approach mm. because you don't want necessarily just this overweight. If you just did it by market cap, you, you may have some very big companies in copper and you end up with just a, a copper ETF, which we may do down the line. Yeah, but, but I'm kind of with Vince, like that portfolio, you, you just can't, sure, quote unquote, it's an index ETF, but you, you follow the money deep enough and it might go to some desk where it's like, oh, we've got to, this company has started mining coal, we've got to actually remove them now. Mm. So it's not an index in the way that people think that a broad market... Um, an ASX 200, yes. an S&P 500, no. Because so that's a broad market index. Yeah. Yes. So, so this is not just a market cap weighted index. No. This is about, I mean, I haven't read the paper, the but, but as a general guy, you know, someone has got an investment thesis that says and embodies that in an algorithm which is to a greater or lesser extent quantitative. Yes. There'll be some comp-based rules, things like revenue purity. So how do you define revenue purity? Do you use um, independent data providers that can provide that revenue purity based on that underlying stock? So we don't want companies in this ETF that don't have that revenue purity towards those clean energy transition metals. Mm. You want to make sure that those um, provide producers and miners are associated with one of those key metals that is just defined by the IEA. Mm. You then want to apply an ESG screen. So it's all rules-based in that way, but those rules need to be defined mm. at the outset. Mm. And the one thing that I would say is as an ETF provider, we're constantly refining or reviewing the index methodologies and the indexes that we track. And an example there would be ACDC mm. this year was implemented a ESG screen because we started tracking that index that we use for ACDC five years ago. Mm. Now, that index has been around for seven years. But in that time, battery technology as an industry has grown, it's changed, it's evolved. It's very different. Mm. We don't want to be associated with companies like Lockheed Martin and Rolls-Royce who are also have defense contracts. Mm. But they're probably in that index or that thematic because they are associated with battery projects. So how do you do that? So you you have to constantly review, refine, make sure that the index that you're tracking, especially in the thematic space, is aligned with the strategy and the objective that you were set out to do. I, I just, I think, you know, if you do invest in these thematic ETFs, like you just need to understand how, like, because if you understand how anything works, you can make a decision and hang your hat on it. Like, I, I really think we're re- naming them today, you've heard it here first, like most thematic ETFs like this, they're a soft passive. They're not a hard passive. Well, what, yeah, so what is passive? What is index? Well, I think that that's goes back to VIN, like a yeah, market weighted. Yeah, I mean, I I just don't like the word passive at all because these are not passive decisions. They're well, pass- they are within the parameters that yeah. they've so set. Yeah, so it's a rules-based approach yeah. and those rules are set. We can't move away from no, no, those but, rules. But, but, someone, but deciding that that set of rules is what I want to invest in. But then I would argue, is the S&P 500 an active or a rules-based approach? Because Tesla wasn't allowed in there, even though it was one of the 500 biggest companies, it wasn't allowed in there for three quarters. Is that because of the revenue? 
No, I no, think was... it was just the index committee wouldn't allow it in um, there for a period there was, of time. There was a reason. There was a reason. Yeah, why. I forget. But th- that's an active decision yeah. by the index committee. Actually, we've got Elon. He's about to come in. Yeah, <laughs> Elon. Um, and I thought he was still yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> with the sink. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, with the the new energy index that I talked about, you know, mm. they had. Um, yeah, the set of rules that you talked about, you know, there was so much in solar, so much in wind, and then they looked at individual companies and every quarter they moved companies in and out. Always rules-based, but not always quantitative rules. So that's that's probably the, the difference there. So a, lot of, a, a lot yeah. of Athematic ETFs are very, very quant-based in their rules. Yep. Um, our robo ETF and our tech ETF are two unique ones where the universe, initial universe, before rules are applied, are active first. So the robo ETF, for example, uses uh, an index by Robo Global. They've got a research team. They've got a dream team of strategic advisors that are all around that robotics and automation space. They define this universe of stocks that are associated with robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence, and that's active first because that's bottom-up research. But sorry, my point about act- sorry, my point <laughs> my, my point about active was not a comment on the manager or the management philosophy, but looked at from the consumer's perspective where they're making an active investment decision. So by active by choosing an ASX two hundred, you are making investment firstly in Australia. Yes. Secondly, an investment that's dominated by materials and financials. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, one that's dominated by a handful of big companies. That was the point I was yeah, making. So you, you, you're, you're, you're being, they may be managed passively. Yes, you're being active with a passive approach. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Um, and that's why I always use the term indexed rather than passive. passive. Yeah. But the other consequence of that, you know, having worked out, this is the investment thesis I'm trying to implement, that index seems to do that based on the index provider and the rules and the portfolio. And then you look at the output of that and you go, well, that's 40% in Australia. No, 40% China. China, 10% in Australia. Australia, 10 in US. So they are pretty fundamental investment outcomes that you need to be comfortable with and consider in your research. Um, You know, some big Australian names in there, Oz Minerals, Linus, Pilbara, Pilbara, Ivanhoe. Mm -hmm. They're names that you will also have in your ASX 200, mm-hmm. albeit a much smaller percentage. Yes. So what you're saying is I'm going to increase my allocation to Australian minerals, but I'm also going to buy, put 40% of my money in China today. Yes. Now, obviously, that will change over time as yes, the will. companies yep. change. Mm. But that's a an active decision on the part of an investor. 100%. And, um, but, that's, but that's the other kind of, you know, the whole... Hamish Douglas's philosophy mm-hmm. that we can get exposure to China through the S&P 500 because, you know, a lot of the top American companies are in China and all over the, the world. world. Yep. Um, it, it's the same thing with this. Like, you can get a lot of green exposure throughout the world through China in you, this ETF. You, you can, but that notion which that it's the revenue that matters when it comes to investment. Um, and I've heard that argument going, well you know, mostly apply to US investors. You say, look, we don't have to invest in these offshore companies because... We've got, you know, Taco Bell opening yeah. in Shanghai. Um, yeah. But that, but revenue source is only one part of that diversification. You've got currency, you've got regulatory environment, you've got... 
a whole bunch of things that create diversification other than revenue. Do you, do you want to know a bit of a, a tin hat theory of mine? Do you? Well, does that stop you getting sunburned on your pate? <laughs> you know how when the war in Ukraine happened and a lot of American companies were pulling out of Russia due to protest and like, we're not doing that. I actually think it's because um, Swift was turned off. They couldn't get the money out. Mm. Anyway, we'll take that as a comment. Mm. <laughs> uh, I don't expect Global X to. Yeah, I know. I was going to say comment. No, no comment on that. But what I would say for thematic ETFs is I would um, a good test for anyone that wants to try to work out what what theme that ETF is trying to provide. Mm. Try not to look at the name. Try not to look at the code. Just look at the portfolio. Mm. Mm. Can you pick the theme now? If you can easily pick the theme that that ETF is providing exposure to, well, that that means it's it's doing a pretty good job. Um, or if it's not, why is that the case? You know, that means you need to delve a lot de- a lot deeper. Whether it's you don't understand the theme and you don't know the companies mm-hmm. within that theme, or that ETF is not doing a good enough job. Absolutely. And, yeah. You know, I've seen ETFs that provide exposure to a thematic, and they're actually providing exposure to very broad themes. You know, we launched a, a fintech ETF last year, and I remember some of the first instances of the indexes that we received from index managers had Visa um, had well Visa's in there, but yeah. it had Facebook, Google, Apple as some of the top 10. And we were just like, well, this is just a FANG ETF, which we've already got. Yeah. Um, why would I need those companies in there? And it's because obviously they were having the payment systems yeah. that they were trying to do. But is that what you're buying a FinTech ETF for? The thematic of FinTech is not that. The, the idea of FinTech is the you know, the squares of the world, the afterpays at the time, et cetera. One last thing before we move on. To, I know I've, I've got to go in 15 minutes, guys. Sorry. Time flies. Well, we can carry on without you. Well, you can, but I need my gear back tomorrow. So I'll drive it to you. We're about to run out of marshmallows. Mm. So one other thing that you need to consider with um, some portfolios that aren't bread and butter, boring portfolios is the fees. And we know there's an author out there who basically says you need to get the cheapest fund possible at any cost, right? So, you know, and I've disagreed with that notion uh, a few times because it's not all about fees. Um, but one of these things is like this portfolio, it's 0.69%. So, you know, some people would have an aneurysm at that, but we're not putting 100% of our money into a portfolio like this. No. So speak to us, I guess, why the fees are so expensive. Is it the licensing costs? Is it the, I don't know, the currency conversion like in these funds what 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 contributes to the fee yeah because i know if you know you, you do a s&p 500 fund or an a200 it's basically free um and you get into funds that are a bit sexy and have all these fun stuff mm-hmm. there starts that up to real money so i think with some of those providers that are offering the market trackers the for a very very low cost they're probably losing money to be completely honest, or they're just breaking even on that product and that break-even point is very, very high, but they're probably making money outside of the fees, things like stock lending or internal efficiencies that they've got because they're large enough um, that they can use you know, across their, their networks. What I would say with a lot of costs associated to an ETF, especially when we look at that you know, 0.69% per annum, is things like the 
underlying indexing licensing costs. So that is a cost that we have to pay and the more nuanced or you know, where that index is, there may be fees associated with that. You've then got underlying custody fees. So the custody on Australian stocks is cheaper than the custody on China A-class shares or Taiwanese or Korean stocks. Then the trading costs. Trading costs of US shares and Australian shares is still very, very cheap relative to then share trading of international markets, which is very hard to do. So the combination of those three, then on top of that, you've got listing fees and regulatory fees, um, tax accounting fees that we end up paying on the, on the underlying fund, especially with your different jurisdictions, that's different tax accounting potential processes and um, providers that we have to use. There's a whole gambit of then additional fees. So the larger, especially in emerging markets, you generally find emerging market products are a little bit more expensive because of those higher costs associated with the trading and custody of the underlying stocks versus developed markets or Australian and US um, ETFs. There's a question here from Ben Boulderoff. What makes an ETF good? What are some pointers to look out for? And this is the kind of terminology that you know ETF gets thrown around so much online. The question, Ben, is what makes an investment good? That's the question he's really asking. That's right, yeah. because you know what makes an ETF well. I, what makes an investment good? Well, I I tick all these boxes for direct property. Well, an ETF doesn't matter because it's just a vehicle, right? It is, um, but I think you got to start with what do I want to invest in, and then you go and how do I want to do it? How do I do it? <laughs> So if you want to invest in Australian microcaps, there is no index. Yeah. Because yes, because the index <laughs> take that sort of, back to head office. Because the index sort of stops at the three hundredth, which mm. is still relatively large. Um, do they do that for like? Sorry, Vince, to cut you off, but the anything outside of the three hundred is it literally a liquidity issue and there's no research and not heaps of people care? Like Probably, but that's part of what makes them an attractive investment because there isn't as much research. So an active manager can show demonst- some value. demonstrably mm-hmm. can show value, but there's no index. Mm-hmm. And m- there are a handful of active ETFs, but most of the action is in the unlisted fund market there. So we end up using unlisted funds for our microcaps. Mm. And active funds at that. And active funds at that. Um, what? You invest in active funds, We Vince? do. I mean, this may seem a bit old-fashioned, but we believe You're in- You're breaking all the influencer <laughs> rules. We, we believe Influencers. In, we are a little old-fashioned here. We believe in evidence-based investing. I know it's un, unfashionable. And um, it is demonstrable that active managers add value in emerging markets, in microcaps, and private equity and private equity. Well, you can't invest it any other way, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also in specific sectors. So, if you want to buy a healthcare fund, um, yeah, I think it's reasonably demonstrable that you can, at the right size, add value. But so, getting back to Ben Ben's point, yeah. Um, that you know, having decided what it is that you want to invest in, now what's the vehicle that you're going to do that? And you know, if I want to invest in semiconductors, well, yeah, semiconductor ETF seems an awfully sensible way of doing it. Now I have to pick one, mm. and I go, well, what index? You know, what's the index methodology that's going to implement my investment thesis that chips are good? Mm. I, I think uh, 
uh, what makes a good ETF, just on that specific question, is there are only a few ETF providers in the Australian market. Um, be aware that there's more than the one brand. You know that that's something that obviously we're trying to to make sure people are aware. I'm not saying that we have every provo- every product available for every investor. You have some investors that will want products that we don't have available, and therefore they should go to those those, those competitors. Um, maybe in in due course we may have those exposures, but be aware of who the provider is. Pick up the phone, email, ask a question around the fact that you know we're happy to provide you information um, that's general in nature. We're happy to talk to you about the fund. You know we provide a lot of content. So make sure that you're using a provider that you believe is trusted. And to be honest, we're all regulated. You know, we all go through that process. We go through all these audits, you know, all these due diligence processes. So in that way, what makes a good ETF? I think it comes down to the investment that they're willing to wanting to make a decision on and therefore do that research on the underlying, you know, to what I said. Yeah. And in terms of an ETF specifically, one of the big things that screens that we apply in our research is f- physical replication. So we're a big fan of where you're trying to invest in an index, you should be choosing a fund that buys the physical things that are in the index rather than trying to create it with Wasn't derivatives. There, the uh, Out of the US, a Bitcoin ETF that we're using deriv- derivatives? I invest in the futures. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So whereas we, our one, will invest in the physical, yeah. they'll invest in the futures. But just one point on what makes an ETF good – do the research, lift up the hood, understand what you're investing mm. in, you know, read the fund flyer, read the prospectus, the PDS if, if you need to. Down, um, download the know, creation da- basket and have yeah. a look. And also, yeah, down, so the basket of our equity ETF, so the full portfolio is updated daily. Mm. You know, our commodity, our gold ETF, our silver ETF, platinum, palladium, you can see the, the serial numbers for the bars that we have exposure to. You can see, you know, the weights, everything is all there. Um and to the one question that one point that you made earlier, which is, well, how do I know this ETF will last? You know, the GMTL ETF that we launched last week, that only has one and a half or two million dollars in, in assets at the moment because it's only just launched. Mm. That doesn't mean that we can't receive tens of millions of dollars of investment on one day because the underlying is liquid. You know, the the main point there is the size of the ETF is not representative of the liquidity of that ETF. And what you see on screen is not the liquidity. It's like an iceberg. So all you're seeing on screen when you're trading or your broker's trading is just the tip of the iceberg liquidity. When's the best time to buy an ETF? At the start of the day, end of the day, middle day, Vince? Um, Well, if I was talking about an Australian one, I would be saying I I don't want to be there at the open or the close. Um, I want to be there sort of mid-morning, mid-afternoon. I think Kinesh alluded to this earlier, you know, if you've got something that's got a heavy Asian component, you probably want to be doing it when Asia's open. Yep. Um, makes it pretty difficult for the US because there's not a lot of overlap between our market and the US market. If any. Zero. zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same with Europe. Um, um, but yeah, with Asia, it'd be around two, one, at 1 or 2 p.m. Sydney time yep. um, because that's when majority of the Asian markets have opened and therefore that's when you see spreads are quite tight. But just remember as well, as a provider, we're monitoring the market makers that we use and that we license, that we pay to create a market for our products to make sure that the spreads are within the limits that has been designed. Are you allowed to name the market maker companies or Does is it, they your IP? No, no, no. no that, um, and that's available on our website as well. Yeah. Um, so the market makers that we use are companies like Susquehanna, Nine Mile Financial, Jane Street, Flow Traders, Virtue, etc. Um, 
you know, some of them we use more actively. Some of them do make a market on our products um, as well. Uh, the good thing is we have relationships with all the market makers um, globally and here in Australia. And so therefore, a lot of our ETFs, when we have them and when we launch, they're launching either with more than one market maker, which means that for the investor, they're essentially got two market makers, these two service providers that are making that market and making sure that the prices are honest. Yep. Two last questions and I'll bundle them up and then we'll bring it home. Sarah Herrian, 22, how do how does investing make you money? Is it through dividends? So that's number one. And number two, Rock This Parker says, when ETFs report annual return, does this include dividends or is that separate? So finishing out with some bread and butter investing questions. So how would you say that um, investing in shares makes money? So I think there's two ways of investing in shares that make money. It's obviously the dividends, the income, but also it's the realizing the, the gain that you made. Mm. You know, So we bring it back to that um, initial uh, listener that asked that question around, I think it was a Michael. Yep. Um, you know, when his portfolio was up, that's a paper gain, mm. but that's a gain. That's, Sorry. That's um, spill water everywhere. That's paper, paper-based. Had he realized it, that would have been a real gain that he could have then actively taken out. Um, so I think there's two ways to make money. Um, and in terms of returns, when we discuss total return, that includes income as well. So if- And then the third way is that you haven't spent it. Yes. <laughs> which, which when you're starting out is actually the biggest part of your return. Well, I often say if you've got a portfolio, say under 100 grand, the best return you'll ever get on your investment capital is to put your own <laughs> savings into it. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, it is sometimes difficult to see the, the total return. Um, so when you look at the news at night and it says, you know, the ASX 200 was up to whatever it was today, that number is usually a price index yes. and not an accumulation index, which includes the, the, dividends. the dividends. So yeah. be careful... And that, yeah. that, that, that read the label. That. Read yeah. the label mm. when you but, see a return. So, as a wild example, uh, in my book, sort your money out and get invested, Vince. Available <laughs> um, all good booksellers. Available is my affiliate link. And we've got a new book coming, <laughs> the prequel called "Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money," because the career that you choose and double down on will be the best investment possible. Trust me. If I use the parallel, because everyone knows homes, we all live in homes, and we may rent homes. So that house over there in regional Australia might be worth $600,000 each week. There's a tenant in there, I don't know, paying $500 a week rent. So that rent is making the landlord money, but also the property they hope will grow in value. So that's the same as the share price and dividend or unit price and distribution for the ETFs. Yes, the but the unit price also can include the distribution as well. So as the unit price is growing, when we make a distribution, your unit price will drop yes. accordingly. Yeah. And so that's what some some people don't realize that, especially in June 30, we will distribute the realized capital gains that the underlying fund has made and that has um, accumulated. We will distribute those out. And that's the gains, by the way, generally through rebalancing of the portfolio. So the underlying baskets that we rebalance. So we will distribute those out and the unit price drops accordingly. It doesn't necessarily mean that that investor still hasn't received that into their portfolio, but it's just how they see it. Yeah. But I, I think I get it for a few days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, I and just it scares to people. Illustrate that it's the it's concepts are the same. The concepts are the same. Yeah. yeah. And then if there was on paper 
last 12 months, this fund did 10% return. 5% might have been due to income. Yeah. And that 10% return is after fees. So GlobalX have taken their management fee. So it's a net 10% before tax. After fees before tax. Yep. And then if that's held in your self-managed super fund, there'll be a 15% tax perhaps, or in your own name, could be 30% tax. Which is always a bit of a challenge when you try and compare super returns to investment returns. So if you... I don't like how they disclose their returns, Vincent. So super funds generally report net of tax, net of fees, fees, other than the fixed monthly fee. Mm. So comparing the Sun Super Vanguard Fund to the public offer Vanguard Fund um, is a very difficult thing to do. Mm. You mean Australian Retirement Trust? Sorry, Australian Retirement Trust. Look, I have to go uh, only because I told someone I'd be at Chatswood five minutes ago. Uh, Mm. (laughs) Asher, who's our voiceover guy on the way here, I stopped at Chatswood and he did some voiceovers in the back of my car amongst other things, and then... Um, I don't think we want to know what you oh, can actually get on in the well, back of your car. Uh, amongst other things, as in, <laughs> he left his phone in my car and he finishes work at four, and I said, I'm swinging back around four and it's now five past four. So, all that to say, uh, we probably should wrap it up, it's been over an hour and a half, but Kanish, anything else that you want to maybe just finish on, what's exciting that's coming up at Global X? Uh, anything that you want to get off your chest that you haven't? Look, I, I think the only thing I would say is, um, you know, for anyone listening to, to go to our website, globalxetfs.com.au. Um, so glo- that's globalxetfs.com.au. There's a lot of good, really good insights that we're getting out from the US team and also our local team, white papers, investment um, research, etc. You know, just on that Green Metal Miners product, we, we did a deep dive on the five stocks um, that are in there just awesome. to give people a bit of background. Mm. Um, but in terms of new products, we're going to be launching a global carbon credit ETF, that's a synthetic ETF, so to invest in the underlying futures um, um, carbon market. And that's a, that's a global play that, that'll be coming out um, very shortly. And um, that code is GCO2. And there's many others that we're going to be having and they can go on the website and you know, subscribe, et cetera, and mm. you know, reach out if any questions. ETF related, um, happy to help. And I mean, use GlobalX as your own research. If you've got a bloody, I don't know, if you're frothing and thirsty for direct shares in the US and you look at Global X's ETF and you see the top five holdings, you're like, I'll just go direct. Like, use them as your research. <laughs> now, I got a bit distracted with your hoodie when you were reading out the URL. Is the hyphen in the URL as well? Uh, no, it's not. No. Do you want to spell it out? Yeah, so the hyphen there is Global X by Mirai Asset. No, but uh, oh, the, oh, the URL? Oh, uh, Global X, so G-L-O-B-A-L-X-E-T-F-S dot com dot A-U. Sweet. That's all right for the dyslexics among us. <laughs> um, and the good thing was, guys, like before we started, I said to Kanish, hey, if I ask you something that's commercially sensitive that you don't want made public and all that, whatever, use the safety word. And what was the safety word? Apricot. And guess what? He didn't say apricot. So we're not editing anything here. Oh, we never edit anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can hey, tell. Do <laughs> you want to add anything, Vince? No, I'm good. I'm just going to sit here and have some more schmores. Mm. And remember, if you do froth on investing, you can head over and subscribe to the My Millennial Investor podcast. And we've fired that podcast right back up. And Nick, the new host of that, he's having a lot of fun. And what I might do is, we didn't get time to touch on it, but those um, those sexy ETFs with the um, the call strategies in the S and P five hundred. 
Yes. Might get Nick to review one of them and have a chat about it. Yeah, yet to be released, but we'll be coming shortly. Yeah, awesome. Or we might get you back when they're out. Excellent. Sounds good. But also, can you be a show partner of My Millennial Money and just come back every (laughs) three months to a campfire chat? Okay, thanks. Bye. Do you got the invoice? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you, friends. Bye. Bye Bye-bye now. See you, guys. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.